You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers. OMG! Cause I was like, "What the? What, what do I say other than hey? <laughs> what do I? What do I say? OMG! That just shamed me. It shamed me for using hey as my first word. Welcome to 2020. Like, that's a normal thing to do. Was that your first word? Is that literally OMG is three letters, Siobhan? I thought you had a master's degree. Yeah, I was saying my first word was hey, and that is indeed one word. Maybe it's an anagram. Who knows? Well, what I was going to tell you is that we have Ernie Bach back, and er, I love saying that Ernie Bach back. Um, he came October. on down and he stuck around, uh, but <laughs> this guy is literally like, he's, he's a Renaissance man, like for real, like we are all on lockdown and we were definitely like mid lockdown when we did this. Well, it's funny because he has such a, like you guys said, it's, he has such a huge presence, but the only way to understand Ernie Bach Jr. is to talk to him and get some of these stories. And I feel like we really got to get into all sorts of conversations and dig deep about his experiences and, you know, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily find by just looking him up on the internet. Yeah. He's definitely got, he's got the name drops down. He, he knows everyone and everyone knows him. So there's some really cool rock star stories. Maybe Ernie's even- at a level where they're dropping his name. Because I remember one time I was on my uh, my Facebook and one of my favorite rock star drummers, I won't call him out, was like, dude, wh- where'd you get that Ferrari? Because, of course, I'm a loser and like posed in front of his one of his insane, <laughs> ridiculous cars. I'm like, I know a guy. And he was like all like starstruck that I could get him like any chance of getting. I'm like, oh, my God, is this what happens when you're as cool as Ernie Bach? Like, I'd, I'd love to be that guy. Like, I honestly, if I could be locked down anywhere, I want to be at Ernie Bach's place hanging out with him in the hot tub. <laughs> with Steel Panther playing in the, in the background. Sounds romantic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just us. Just me and yeah. Ernie alone. Is it weird? Yeah. Is it weird it's a, it's yet? It's a hor- horrifying image, but... <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, we want Ernie to come back, and I know he's just going to hear this, and he's just going to be, like, face-palming. Although, in our defense, nothing that's going to happen on the show could possibly be crazier than what Ernie has done himself in life which is amazing. So check it out. Part two with Ernie Bach Jr. Ernie! I am Benny Goodman and welcome to another episode of 2020 where we may be socially distant, but we're certainly socially relevant. I'll get to to the stutter later. But that said, Right over there, we have the stupendous, the wonderful, the magnanimous Siobhan Cronin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then this time I won't undersell you. I actually think that if anything, you're superfluous, Corey, because that's my backhanded Dude, that's way of saying syllables for that me, you're too much. That, that makes almost too worse. much. I know. He's exacerbating the situation. You need to get out situation. your thesaurus. <laughs> I know. Corey Beza, the I bass know. player from Lost Symphony, the band <laughs> that sponsors us. Yes. Along with Boston Guitars. Go to Reverb and buy some guitars from Heath. He's awesome. That (laughs) said, I'd like to introduce our guest of the the hour, Ernie Bach Jr., ladies and gentlemen. And and 
all non-binary people in between. So now that we got that out of the way, I just want to get to the real, to the real deal. So Ernie, you gave, you're a huge philanthropist and you rebuilt what was once the Wayne Theater and you gutted this place and made it honestly one of the most beautiful venues. It's so beautiful. It's stunning. In the entire yeah. world. But when, but when you talked about it, you said, do you know that I like slept out here to get tickets to Deep Purple? Well, and then you came back with Ernie and the Automatics and you played with Deep Purple. What well, was that like for you? Uh, now you got keys to the building. Okay, hang on, hang on. First of all, <laughs> I, didn't, I, do, I didn't redo the building. It's, it's, uh, I, I have the naming rights for the Wang Theater and the Schubert Theater. It's called the Box Center. And when I initially did it, I'm, I'm very close to the guy that runs it. Very, very close. It's a good partnership. And he said, we need new seats. So we ripped out every seat. It's a 3,500-seat venue. We ripped out. I love how you're like, we didn't do anything. And then you're just like, we took out every single seat, which is well, the only thing that my arthritic ass cares about. Structurally, he's saying, but yeah. But it's a 100-year-old theater. It's absolutely gorgeous. I would say that it's on the same par as the Fox Theater in Detroit. Mm -hmm. It absolutely is. You played there, Siobhan? Yeah, yeah, a few times. I played there with, uh, I think it was Il Volo, yeah. the, the Italian trio. Yeah, it's really beautiful. I played there. I played there. We opened up the Deep Purple there. That, that is one of the most spectacular theaters in the country. So anyway, so, so we did the seats. We did the, we did the seats there. But as Benny was alluding, I can tell the story very quickly. Back in the 70s, you know, I was a 70 kid. And if you wanted to go to a show, you had a, you had a telephone, you could call what they had, Ticketron. It was called Ticketron. And you called up and you gave a credit card and you got, you got tickets waiting for you at the box office. Well, there were a lot of problems with that for us. First of all, we didn't have a credit card. And it was always busy when you called. Always, always, always busy. So what we used to do many, many times, and I think people of my generation have done it, is that we used to sleep outside the box office. So when the box office opened, we could get the ticket. It was, it was almost standard procedure. I did it for, for, for many, many bands. But one night, I think it was 74, 73 or 74, I can't remember. I, I, as a matter of fact, I think I talked to Glenn, 74. In 1974, we slept outside the Wang Theater for tickets to Deep Purple. And we indeed were the first people there when they opened the box office, we got the seat. 38 years later, I opened for Deep Purple in that venue. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, and one year later, the venue had my name on it. <laughs> now the funny part is that, that Bruce Mittman, the, the gentleman that used to run WAAF, which is a huge station in Boston, is probably still thinking to himself, but you're still not powerful enough to get me a picture with Ringo Starr. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Be I got to heckle you forever because that's the funniest thing because I'm going to tell you the only thing that was, that was better for me than spending $4,000 on a Ringo picture, which, by the way, I totally worth it. I love Ringo Starr. Um, and not getting a picture with him was seeing the look of, of total horror on, on, on Bruce's face. When he, you got to go take a picture and he didn't, I was like, this is worth it. I would rather watch him wait, 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 be back, over here. Back up, back up. Um, I haven't met everybody, but I've met a lot of people. 
I've met four or five presidents, okay? It was more difficult to meet Ringo Starr than it was to meet the last few presidents, Jeez. in my, in my <laughs> yeah. opinion. It was, but you know what? I feel like they didn't have the right security because when we first got there, you had a key to the back of the building. And I remember walking down and seeing like the, the, the jacket you wore for Sergeant Peppers and thinking to myself in my head, do I ruin my relationship with Ernie and just walk out with us? No, but, oh my God. but they had rules. Now, they, we were talking about Bruce. You're I'm, not supposed to do it. You break those rules. It's called rock and roll. Well, well, well they, you, my friend Bruce, who we talked about, there were rules. Everybody knew the rules going in. So... It's not like we, we come to this venue, all of a sudden, Ernie can get you to meet Ringo Starr. No, the rules are, <laughs> the rules are set. I have, even though he's played at my venue, yeah. he's <laughs> you don't have you, any power. You want to know, know why I don't feel bad for Bruce? It's because between both, you had to have spend $5,000 on art, which all goes to charity. So don't think that he's was, like some... That was, that was, that was Ringo's... Right, five, $5,000, but, but his paintings were four... Yeah, I have a print that was $4,000. And Bruce brought a picture, uh, picture that was $4,000. So I said, Bruce, I'll donate this to you. And he was just like... I, he didn't even want to go with my, my shyster plan. I was like, dude, I could get you a picture. Together, we spent $8,000, and he still didn't go for it. That's because the, the rules that were put up front weren't adhered to. And as a matter of fact, Bruce was so out of control that night that my friend Which Joe's is fantastic. Theater, my friend Joe's that runs the theater called me and said, hey. And I said, all right, let's ban him for a year. So we banned Bruce. <laughs> no way. To that theater, yes. Oh, that, you, know, you know what's so funny is so, so people get some background. Bruce Mittman uh, is famous for, you know, he, he got Opie and Anthony on the radio back in the day. I'm sure not everyone knows them. They're not on the radio the way they were. But, but back in the day in Boston, if you were listening local. to the radio, they were the local. Op Opie and Anthony were local. They had their own CD that they had in Newbury Comics of their uh, crank calls. And they were the funniest thing ever. And they had no remorse and the bad guy just like you know uh what uh, pig vomit for 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 uh, howard stern was bruce mittman except it was real it was totally totally real and poor bruce got beat the shit out of him i mean and they would do horrible things that were hysterical but absolutely wrong certainly you couldn't get away with it anymore and now it's like bruce doesn't want to color in the lines that's why i think it's funny because He's like the corporate guy that says, you're not supposed to do this. And then he shows up and goes, can't we do this? And I'm just sitting there like, I'll play by the rules. It's fine. I'll buy the painting and give it to the children fund. Yeah. And, and, and who we're talking about is, is Bruce Mittman. You can, you can look him up. You can Google him. In Boston, there was a legendary radio war between WBCN, who was a... a, a a powerhouse, nationally known radio station, big, big station, WBCN, and Bruce ran WAAF. Both rock stations, both in the Boston market, and both hated each other. When you went into BCN in the men's room in the urinal, they used to put AF bumper stickers on, on the bar, <laughs> so you would be peeing on AF every time. <laughs> Time you took a pick. So it was that intense and that crazy. And I got to say that Bruce Mittman won that war. BCN is no longer in existence. AF is no longer in existence, but BCN went out first. Yeah. So you know, it was really funny. I, I used to record at Futura Studios right around the corner when BCN was back. Was it Comav? Were they on? Uh, uh, Ernie, was it Comav? Like right around the corner from Fenway? Remember yeah, the studios they used to have? 
Yeah, but they were actually. It was right above the ramrod. So it was so hilarious because this ramrod, is a big gay club. So ramrod, you go out. Across the street. Ramrod was across yeah. the street. So yeah, so, you, so you'd be getting, I'd be getting out of my recording session. The DJs would be changing over. And then there'd just be this crazy line of just people dressed with boas and like six inch heels. Yeah. I was like, this is, this is rock and roll. And then Fenway's right over there. So like, welcome to Boston. Right. They were originally at the top of the pro. Oh, geez. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The top, way back, way back. They were at the top of the pro. They, they, what used to be. Is that like Caribbean times? Yes. Yes, exactly. That used to he be. Built, he tells me he built it with his bare hands. Yeah. Well, John Garabedian. Have you had John on your show? Well, no. John well, actually. To, I so I had John. I went out to dinner with John the other day and he goes, so when are you having me on, on, on your show? Yeah. <laughs> and I said when you ask me nicely enough. Yeah. <laughs> and so people know how absolutely offensive that is. John was in 200 markets for like, well, not over the whole period, but he built up the 200 markets over 40, over 50 years of radio. Like other than Casey Kasem, Don Imus, Howard Stern, there's nobody's voice that's been heard more. And if you're from Boston, he was the voice of um, of the Boston Garden. So when Led Zeppelin went on stage, he was the guy that would announce them. So the, I always like to play a game with John Garabedian. I always like to play, like, throw out any random rock star from a certain period and just see, like, his story about it. <laughs> and, you know, like, one time I was like, oh, yeah, so uh, did you ever meet Jim Morrison? He was like, that guy was pounding Coronas backstage. B.B. King's just drinking, like, a nice bud by himself, pounding him. Then he passes out on the speaker. And the crowd goes crazy. The band just keeps going on. And this guy's drunk. He's just drunk. And John's totally fed up with it. I'm like, you're telling me this amazing Jim Morrison story at the Boston Garden. And you were the guy that announced it. And like, meanwhile, he's like speaking with total disdain, like these stupid drunks. <laughs> he's an amazing guy. He's 78. He's, um, if you know, Google him. He, he was very inventive. He, he was one of the architects of pop radio. He really and we start V sixty six. So what people don't realize, if you haven't seen it, go on. So everyone's doing the Netflix thing now. And have you seen the V sixty six? You're in the V sixty six documentary, I'm, aren't I'm you? The, I'm in that documentary. Yeah. Oh yes. Okay. You're in like the credits, right? Didn't he like totally blacklist you just to the end because he's he's Garabedian you? He twenty twentyed you. No, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a longer story. But what it, what happened was when MTV came out in, uh, what was it, 82, 81? When video like, killed the radio star, Ernie. Yeah, when that came out, that Boston was not wired. You couldn't get it. The table was not. Boston was one of, Boston didn't get wired for a long time. Do you not remember the, the, the saying, I want my MTV? Right, right. So you're supposed to call your cable provider and say, I want this because you couldn't actually just turn on the channel. Like now we have 8 million channels. Right. But back then when, because Boston wasn't really wired and they didn't really get MTV, we didn't really get MTV. At the same time MTV was being invented, Garabedian had the same, they were on the same tra trajectory. And, and he hit Boston with, V sixty six, which was like a new oh, England but, but did you tell you're not you're missing the whole shyster part of it. You're missing the shyster part of it. So it opened up the tower opened up in Worcester. So it was but it was for the Metro West area, which is I think what the third largest in the country. So if you had actually set up the tower in Worcester, it would have not reached the reach that it did, but because where he set it up, which is now I I think they turned it into home shopping network afterwards, because of where he was 
He had the largest reach at that time, arguably as much, if not more, than MTV, certainly for that area. And it was 24-hour live music television. And yeah. they just went bananas. And the funny part is, you know, it only lasted for like a year and everyone lamented over it. But John was just like, hey, man, I made money. I was out. We did our thing and moved on to BCN. It's really a, it's really a great story. And, 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 and the documentary is really, really cool. It's awesome. Life on the V, I think it's called, right? Life on the V. Life, that life. Wow. Google that. Life on the V. It's super okay. interesting. Okay. The so thing that's cool, and so, and so people understand too, I mean, they don't talk about it as much on the show, but even before V66, John was breaking everyone from Bruno Mars to Miley Cyrus to the Backstreet Boys. But even, he, I, think, I think he told me, and he, he might tell me it's a different song or something like this, but the, he wanted to play I, I, won't get, I Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. And they were like, uh, no, this is not a single. He's like, no, 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 this is a single. This is what I want to play. And they're like, no, don't play it. And then he played it like five times, like all eight minutes of it or whatever, and made it a number one single. Yeah. And if actually at one point with his open house party, it was so ubiquitous, uh, kind of like you on billboards and television here, but all over the place, that if you actually played a song on it, if he played a song on it, you would chart. You would actually chart on the billboard charts just because it, there were so many listeners at once that you would be on the chart because of it. Yeah. When Lady Gaga played Boston Garden for the first time, she, she as part of the show, during the show, she thanked John Garabedian for breaking her. Do, do you wow. know the second half of that? That let's talk about how cool John is. So I'll tell you John's side of the story. John is doesn't ever he makes the Irish exit really early. He wasn't there for that. He saw like the first two songs was like this is cool left, and then he gets a million text messages. Where are you? Because apparently they put like a light all over looking oh, for no. him. I couldn't find him. <laughs> he was already fucking screwing out of town. He's like fuck this noise. So how cool do you have to be that? Lady Gaga invites you backstage, dedicates a song to you, and you're already on your way home because like 93 is going to be a mess. <laughs> That's amazing, though, how important things like that are to making an artist. And I, I can only say I'm like in terms of Star Set's story, they had a lot of trouble with radio. I mean, they're a Columbus-based band and Columbus Radio, they, they weren't visionary enough to see that it, there was something in the music. It was Colorado, the DJs out in Colorado, Wisconsin, other markets that were like, oh, this is going to be a single. And that's the one, I don't know if you can see it, the gold records over there. I was broken out in Colorado. Yeah, that, you know, so it, it maybe, maybe you should show us your gold records, I mean, Siobhan. I, no, it's only one. It's over there, like it's in only the corner. One. <laughs> it's one more than see. Corey, myself, or Ernie have. <laughs> Although Ernie has a Grammy, so there's that. That's amazing. It may not be his personal Grammy, but he personally owns it now. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Still counts. <laughs> it still counts. Well, because here's the thing. So the thing I love about Ernie is that you know he gives so much back in so many ways. But when you spend money, you spend money fun. And I got to tell you, holding, uh, holding uh, Strangers of the Night, best song of like, what, 1963 from Frank Sinatra. It's, it's, not what, it's not like Tower of Power. It's Frank Sinatra. I held that. I felt the energy. Yeah. I felt the energy. I was like, holy shit. Thank you so much, Ernie, for letting me hold this thing. This is no one else would ever let me do this. No, I have a friend. I have a friend that has a store and she, she gets all this crazy memorabilia and everything. And she called me up one time. She said, I have Frank Sinatra's Grammy for, for, um, uh, Strangers in the Night. Yeah, 1966, Strangers in the Night. And I said, Oh, interesting. And, and we went back and forth, back and forth, and, and I bought it. And she said, Okay, I'll shine it up for you and send it out. And I said, 
don't shine it up. Don't touch it. <laughs> so Let me change the strings on this Jimi Hendrix guitar for you. It's got this great, it's got this great patina on it, you know? Yeah. But I think I'm a big Sinatra fan. As a matter of fact, Netflix has a three-part special right now on Frank Sinatra. If you thought you knew you everything it? about Frank Sinatra, if you watch this Netflix documentary, there's still more you don't know. Wow. Did you watch the David Foster documentary on Netflix yet? No, but I, I, you, you, you have to watch it. I'm I, telling I, you right now, you'll, you'll relate to it. But, but one thing, so all these people are talking about how he makes them do a million different takes and all this. And Celine Dion's like, I have to hit all by myself seven times. And then it goes to Paul Anka and he just goes, you know how many takes it took Frank Sinatra to do my way? One. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You I know. I don't really know David that well. I did, I did hang out with him last year in L.A. I was at his table for an event, and I got to tell you, great guy. Like, you you got to watch the special. I'm telling you right now. Like, yeah. I, I didn't know. I didn't know, and I'm actually almost ashamed that I didn't know. You know what I mean? Because uh, here's one of the things that I do because I, I'm a, a complete nerd. But like when I go to psych myself up, you know, when I go take a walk or go on my hoverboard or whatever, I'm listening to Whitney Houston, I Will Always Love You. Now, here's a true story. That was arranged by David Foster. And it was Kevin Costner's idea to do it with acapella for the first verse, which for me melts my mind every single time because Whitney Houston is just pure awesomeness. Yeah. And he fought tooth and nail and Clive Davis apparently screamed at him and all that sort of stuff and said, listen, David, I think you know what you're talking about most of the time, but let me tell you, I know fucking Whitney and you're, you're keeping an acapella. And he said, as soon as it went out that he was getting calls within seconds of people saying, this is the best thing that you've ever done. Yeah. You know, so that guy, so if you want to know what the whole thing's about is he just makes the best sugary power ballads ever. Yeah, yeah, an amazing guy, amazing guy. Like I said, I don't, I don't know him well. I've hung out with him a little, but he, he, in the industry, he's like, you know, he's a legend. Oh, yeah. You clearly, you know, a lot of people that you know that most of our viewers and listeners are probably familiar with. Um, we talk about a lot with with the people we have on about mindset and mentality of people that are that are operating at high level. Do you have any like observations of these? super successful or is it even legendary artists and musicians that you've noticed that you pick up on that, that, that they seem to all kind of share? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's not just musicians. If you, if you take, if you take super successful people in any industry and in any, a, anywhere, and they're, you know, pretty much at the top of the game or, or, you know, up there where the air is thin, there's a, there's a thread there's a thread of sameness to all those people. And, and the, the super successful people are super successful because they do what people that aren't super successful do. And there's, you know, maybe 10 or 15 things that they will sit there and say, I do this, I do this, I do this. And every single one of them in any single industry will have a common thread through it. Ask you a, a, a question to audit Dan Beck because he said something about success, and he has, you know, he he made sure to let us know in our last meeting that he had a hundred uh, platinum records that he had just given away, other than the ones behind him. Um, he's worked with Michael Jackson and Pearl Jam and all these people, but uh, he said that dealing with success is knowing how to deal with problems. 
Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. Yeah. So what, what is that thread that you're speaking of though? Like is, is, is there an actual tangible thing that you're seeing? There is a thread and, and there's a gentleman that has made his career has made his career of, of, uh, getting the algorithm of those Tony Robbins. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with Tony Robbins. Yeah. Yeah. Robbins whole gig, his whole, everything is he studied successful people and he, he is tell in his teachings, he, he tells what these people do. And it's, 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 it's all the same. And, you know, I'll, I'll just give you one off the top of my head. These people, they, they don't take no for an answer. They just don't take no for an answer. And they build their universe around their future success. There's an old saying, you, you know, dress for the job you want to, you want to get. Sure. And that's real. That's, that's, a, that's a real thing. And, and there's just so many the, the successful people are, are common in a lot of things, but success is not. You can, there's a gazillion different ways of being successful. One guy does it this way. One guy does it another way. It's complete polar opposites, mm-hmm. but they're both successful. But there is that thread that runs through to both people. That, this is so interesting because I you mentioned Dave Mustaine a few times and I actually just picked up his uh, I don't know if it's autobiography or if he had a ghostwriter, but I just started reading it. Auto rant. The one with his, yeah. one with his face on the whole. Yeah, yeah. 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 Every book, yeah, it's a new book coming out with his face on it too. <laughs> no, but you're totally right. I mean, he is like relentless. Like he just had a very clear idea of what he wanted to you do. You have a and very intimate relationship with Dave Mustaine. Yeah. Yeah. No, so I'm interested if you have anything to say about him because I'm I can't put this book down. I've just been like, yeah. oh my god. Yes, he is. He is, and he's actually stayed here. He's he's an he's an amazing amazing guy, and he he one of the other things is is when you start something, always have the end game in mind. Always, no matter what you're doing. I like how you drop that the record in there. End game. You want to do this? It you have to know where it's going. The end game. You always have to know where you want to be, whether you get there or not, or whether you, it, it doesn't matter if you have to climb Mount Everest 20 times. This is the end game I want to be. So every time you start something, there's always that end in mind. Can I tell you that happened with me when I, when I met Dave Mustaine with you? So it's funny because I told Alex, your son, multiple times that every interaction I pretty much ever had with Dave Mustaine has been like everyone else's interaction, which is like, he, he says something completely snarky or whatever. And, and I was like, he's so nice. He's so nice. I'm like, it's because he loves your dad. And he, he's like, no, 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 no. Come with me to this Hendrix thing. He's going to be awesome. And I go there and I stand next to you guys. You all are like 15 feet taller than me. I'm like five foot one. <laughs> You're like six foot 11. Dave Mustaine's like pushing eight feet. And you guys are standing next to me and you guys are talking for so long. First off, you didn't introduce me. He <laughs> ends up looking over, like talking to you. And then in mid-sentence looks at me and goes, is there a reason you're standing here? <laughs> and then the funny part is, so this is where I go to the end. This is where I don't take no for an answer. I said, actually, yes, I'm friends with them, but I'd like you to sign my record. And he signs my record angrily through his scarf. And then later that night, he goes back to his bus and he comes back smelling a little bit funky, a little bit glazed over eyes. I'm sitting there blocking Joe Satriani from going on the stage. because I got my arm around Johnny Lang and he goes, did you get all the autographs you wanted? 
But I think he actually was asking me genuinely. <laughs> so, like, that was the closest I think I've been with Mustaine. First of all, first of all, never talk out of school about Dave Mustaine. That's number one rule. I love Dave Mustaine. He's, like, my favorite. And, yeah, no, he is, he is a great guy. But there's a guy, there's a guy that has, that has something that is highly unusual. And, you know, that, that heavy metal rock is so in its lane. And he has done such a great job with Megadeth can play the whole entire world, sells records, does, I mean, that is, he's a study in itself for success. He's yeah. just amazing well, guy. You know, why he's so, you know why he's so angry? It's because he's right. Because he, he does play guitar better than Metallica. And, his, and, and every single time they do, anything, they do anything, Metallica goes, oh, here's something else that everyone says isn't even as good as Megadeth. But still, they're more successful, which is totally America summed up for you. We're going to give you a trophy for, for not being as good as the other one. But he's, I, I would be so angry if I was him too, because you want to know what? I actually just got this. <laughs> we can't even hear him. Yeah. In my travels, I got one of four first Metallica flyers ever made uh, with Dave Mustaine on it. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you. What are you going to tell us? I'd be mad if I wrote almost every single song on their first three records that are awesome. And he even did the mechanics. We talked to David Ellison at your house about the mechanics, which is the same song as the Four Horsemen, except faster, heavier, and cooler. And Metallica still get all the credit for everything. So I would be angry about Dave Mustaine too, because it's like, how much better do you want me to be than these guys for you to acknowledge it? Yeah, I'm not. I'm you know I I respect. I love Metallica, by the way. I'm not saying I hate them, but oh. Megadeth are amazing. I respect heavy metal and I have friends in the industry and bands and stuff like that, but it's really not my, my, my thing. I, I like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like after this, go listen to heavy metal. That I just, that's not me. You're a right. Beatles guy, aren't you? I, I like like blues based rock and roll. I'm right. real like that. You know, <laughs> can't go wrong. Can't go wrong. That well, so I have to ask you this too. So when we went inside your car salon, there was a Ferrari. Now we're talking about gas, you know, based cars, but there was some technology on this that I was not aware existed. It doesn't have a windshield. It blows. Is it centrifugal force? I don't even know the proper, proper term. So that, can you explain <laughs> this? Out, Ferrari came out with, the, with, with um, this really cool technology and their latest icon series vehicle ferrari is going to build over the next 20 years supposedly you never really know with ferrari they have the icon series which they will tip their hat to the older style vehicles with the latest and greatest of today's technology mm -hmm. so they put in they put in for the first time ever a vehicle that has a virtual windshield so it it when you look at the car standing still, there literally is no windshield. But when the car goes, the car blows air straight up about a foot and a half in front of you, and that protects you from the wind. It's a windshield. Like a force field. Yeah, yeah. It's literally a virtual windshield. It's really cool. That's amazing. So if, if, some, if an object were to come at it, would it, does it blow it out or is this? I would say no. It's a rock. <laughs> okay. It's a rock. Yeah. But it, <laughs> I was just wondering. Yeah, it just makes it a, a better experience because I don't know if you've ever yeah. driven a vehicle without a windshield. 
It gets, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you've, you've seen them, the guys with the goggles, the leather mm-hmm. hat. Yeah. Scarf yeah. white. <laughs> the old days, that's how it used to be. But now you can have, you can have a vehicle, no windshield, no top, and, and actually drive it and be comfortable. That's crazy. <laughs> um, so that, that actually brings up, so, so obviously we've, we've talked a little about the music stuff and the rock and roll history, but you are a car guy. Uh, and as someone who also, you know, sells vehicles kind of for a living, I'd say, uh, how is the auto industry being affected in comparisons is we, we kind of have a grasp on the music industry, but how's that being affected in your view? Well, let's start, let's start in March. Cause really that's where it, that's where it really came. Mid March is where everything everybody went underground the the industry was the industry has has been on a uh has been on the longest run without a downturn in basically the history of the industry wow it was was going very well the economy was doing very well everything everything was happening technology cars were actually being produced for less money because of the technology and the people that are into technology it's a it's a it's like a candy land. You, it's yeah. still available to you. So people, people love purchasing new cars. But then when, when COVID hit, the, you know, the government made the stores close and everything. And, and then not only that, but the pipeline got shut off. The manufacturers in the United States yeah. stopped producing. Right. The, the manufacturers in, in Mexico, the manufacturers in Japan, they stopped producing. So from March until basically 10, 15 days ago, anybody that had inventory was, did well, you know, did, did, did very, very well because there was nothing to buy. So, so they did it. Now that the pipeline of, in Japan is starting to get back together and the, the, um, uh, the people that supply parts are... are, are uh, make a 2020 Ferrari more valuable in the future, Ernie, because it's like the pandemic Ferrari. They only made so many of them because like there was production problems. No, no. They only make so many of them anyway. Yeah. yeah. But right now, so the, so the industry is getting back up. It's getting back up, but there's a, there's a real shortage. If, you, if you're a person and you go to a dealership anywhere in the country... There's very little inventory. That sucks because yeah. I'm looking for a car. <laughs> I was going to ask. So did did, well, did come the demand, on down? <laughs> did the demand stay pretty steady? Did it seem like people were still interested in buying cars? Was it mostly the supply side that was an issue? No, the demand stopped and the supply stopped. Mm-hmm. But then the demand started before the supply, which is mm-hmm. exactly where we are right now. The demand for vehicles is much more than they can actually supply. So wow. the in fact, but that will end. That will by the end of the year, it'll all be. Ferrari is the new toilet paper. <laughs> no, this is all cars. This is all cars. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm messing around. But that said, I want to bring it back to something that made really made my heart feel good because you know you can give some serious insight on this. So I got the privilege of being invited to go see the Kings of Chaos uh, when you had them at your house. And and for those that don't know, the Kings of Chaos is kind of a revolving door of super super amazing famous. <laughs> rock stars that play together in an ultimate band. And I think who was there that time? Billy Gibbons. Was it, uh, it's Chester from Lincoln Park. Um, and Billy Gibbons, Steve Stevens, Matt Sorum. Was it DeLeo? Well, uh, um, yeah, Robert, I think, I think played. Robert, I think Robert was here. Yeah. Yeah. And Robin Zander. 
Oh right? yeah, Robin Janderson. And Robin's, we can't. I love how we forget the guy from Cheap Trick. You know what I mean? Like that's how good that band was. It was so cool. Because first off, first off, I was going to say I would love to know more about Chester, but one of my favorite pictures ever of him, and one that you you actually posted, is him. In you have like a a, a cool like how would you describe that back room where he was like meditating? Oh, the pillows. With all the pillows. I, I call it the pillow room. <laughs> the pillow. Okay, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> But so, what was it like having Chester at your house? What, what was it like to get to know him? People, I'm sure people want to know. Chester, I, I personally had never met Chester Bennington until he came to my front door, and when when he came, I didn't ha I didn't have any like preconceived notions because I liked every band he was in. I super respected uh, singer, but he was he was a great guy. I mean, a, a amazing guy. They stayed. I think they stayed two or three nights. But I get up early in the morning. I'm up by 6, 6.30. Yeah, um, and Chester was up at like 5.30. And he would hit the Oh, my gym. gosh. Yeah, he would hit the gym. So he would work out every single morning. And we would have, um, we'd have coffee together at, 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 you know, breakfast, you know, in, the, in, the, in, the, in my kitchen with just me and him. And he was telling me about the new record that he, that he had, and he played me, played me a little of it. And he was... He was just an extremely personable, brilliant guy. Like, I don't know what his IQ was, but whatever it was, was higher than the normal person. And he got along really, really well with my son. And we legitimately really, really liked Chester Bennington. I mean, he just was a great, great guy. And then he, uh, you know, we, we, he was going to come to Boston and in a few weeks before he was going to come to Boston, he texted us and said, Hey, I'm coming to Boston. You, you know, please come out to the show. And, um, you know, then he ended up, uh, tragically losing his life. I gotta tell you, my favorite shame. part of the whole thing was when, when Chester was on the side of the stage. So they basically, they have like a revolving door as far as lead singers. So Robin Zandra will go sing a Cheap Trick song. He'll go sing, you know, a Zeppelin song. But when Chester would go off the stage, he would keep dancing. Yeah. He would do like the, the, uh, the I get like Mick Jagger, Steven Tyler dance. And like you said, he worked out all the time. Yeah, he had like an eight pack. And he was like, oh, oh, I, have a, I have a picture with him on, on the side of the stage and he looked so ripped, but he, he was so, so nice. Yeah. But the, the funniest part was I was standing on the side of the stage and then I remember just, I, I tend to block people on the side of the stage because I'm rude and inconsiderate and don't know my space too. all the yeah. time. I'm just an obnoxious person. And I remember him being so polite and like kind of like dancing up behind me and almost like grooving on me and be like, hey, I'm like, what's going on, man? He's like, I got to go on stage and sing a song. I'm like, oh. <laughs> uh, he was, when, I, when he was here, he was extremely healthy lifestyle, super healthy mm -hmm. It's amazing. Awesome, awesome guy, awesome voice, and just so appreciative of everything. And I got to tell you, when I went and met uh, Robert um, DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots, all he talked about was how sweet of a guy and how incredible it was to be able to work with someone like Chester, you yeah. know, especially even with Stone Temple Pilots because his voice was so incredible. Yeah. That, like he could sing anything. He's a voice that will be remembered for all time. And I, I'm honored. I feel like it's like in 20 years, we're going to say that that was to Jimi Hendrix. You know, like you got to hang out with Chester is in the same ballpark of, oh, you hung out with George Harrison. And I know that sounds pretentious, but I really think that he's going to influence people just the same way. Just yeah. a whole new generation. Yeah, great guy. Great, great guy. I've noticed that with like a lot of the, you know, when you meet people that are really at the top, I feel like a lot of them really are very personable and down to earth. They're just very authentic. 
And I feel like that's part of that vision of like, you know what you want and you're a no bullshit type person. I feel like people like that are just so easy to get along with, you know, because they just, they, they let you know who they are right away. Agreed. Completely agree. Yeah. Can I, can, I'm going to tell a funny story and Ernie, I'll let you go in as deep as you want to go on it. But uh. one, <laughs> one time, so our friend Paul, and I go back to him because Paul's a common thread when he comes to town. He stays with Ernie at the guest house and he always calls me. Because he, he knows, like, whatever, I'm down for his shenanigans. We're cut from the same cloth. And um, he calls me and he goes, hey, man, can you, make a, uh, can you make dinner plans for us? You know, at whatever restaurant. Um, for, for me and, uh, and Tara. I was like, Tara? Tara who? Tara Reed. Now, meanwhile, I'm a child of the 90s, not the 70s, the 90s. And American Pie was like my life, dude. And Tara Reid was like literally someone I adored. And I remember going and Googling online, like has this, like I probably shouldn't order any alcohol around this girl. I think she's clean. I call Paul, like, should I be cognizant of this? And he goes, oh no, get us two vodka tonics or whatever. I'm like, and that's when I knew the night was going to begin because we were on our way to go to a Music Drives Us event that you raised a ton of money for with Megadeth. So it all comes back together. Dave Mustaine was there. Tara Reid was there. Can you explain that ridiculousness? Because I feel like that's like the most crazy mashup of people ever. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, first of all, I got to say that, that Miss Reed, Tara Reed is a wonderful, wonderful person. She's super sweet. And I'm, I'm honored that I even know her. Okay. Honored that I even know her. As a matter of fact, her and my son still text. One thing led to another and, and I met Tara and we got along we got along very well, and um, we. Uh, <laughs> she came over. She came over, and um, and at the time she came over, I had uh, Dave Mustaine and Megadeth were doing an acoustic show, very rare, an acoustic yeah. show to benefit Music Drives Us because Dave. You bring that out of people because you made Stone Temple Pilots so inspired that they came out with an acoustic album because of you. Yeah, it's, yeah, Stone Temple Pilots, they, they, they play for us as totally acoustic, which is completely awesome. I, I, love, I, love, the, the rock band, I love the rock bands playing acoustic because I, I just like that type of stuff. But, you made Slash do it too. Well, well wait a minute. For, when I hire a national band to play for my company or an event or anything like that, usually the venues are, are smaller venues and I can't – you know, they can't have the full blown band. They just, they just, yeah. can't. so, so a, 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 a acoustic version is not only, uh, will fit the, the, the mold better, but it's incredible to hear these guys doing acoustic versions, like acoustic versions of, of Megadeth songs are, are just spectacular. You can, you can Google it. You can Google it on YouTube. There are a few of uh, Megadeth songs that they do do acoustic. So it, it, it fit the it fit the mold. It fit the mold. And uh, it was a great night. It was a good night. <laughs> I just remember thinking to myself, I just talked to Dave Mustaine. I just went out to oh here's the thing that happened afterwards. So we go back to the hotel and Tara Reed's hungry. And the hotel's like, we don't have any open food. And they're like, is there any Chinese place open? We ordered Chinese food. And they're like, well, someone's gonna have to bring it up to her. I'm like, I'll bring it up to her. And I remember like my girlfriend at the time being like, no, you won't. And I'm like, listen, 
I could handle myself, but like, I wouldn't tell you not to go up with the shiny vampire from Twilight if he wanted Chinese food. Like, what, <laughs> like I trust you. Trust is the biggest basis of a relationship. Yeah, no, no, t- no need. There's no need to to worry about Tower Tower. But you're so asleep. I'm, I gotta tell you that it was like a dream come true to be able to go upstairs and have Chinese food so randomly with the girl from American Pie and have her just tell me stories. I'm like, I felt like. Yeah, she's the whole time. I, I got to reiterate, she, she's a great, great guy. But the best line from that night is when we were we were in the in with Dave in the dressing room, and Tara walked in, and Dave turns to me and he goes, "Is that Bunny?" <laughs> like those, are, you know, if you get that joke, it's it's pretty funny, you know, Bunny from The Big Lebowski. Right. <laughs> his the some of the stuff he says in this book is just so funny. I just love. That. I mean, obviously, I've never met him, but I feel like you can tell the way that he talks. And Dave Mustaine in this book, you know, he's just so great, candid. Great. Like the thought just comes right out. Great, great sense of humor. Funny, funny guy. You know, the, the one thing about those those classic rock guys, they've done everything. They've seen it all. They've played every venue. They've had just just everything they're so they're so comfortable in their own skin now most that, that i think mm. i i got a mustang quote for you that you'll appreciate so you've seen the behind the music right yeah so i posted for for um siobhan because i remember one of the things that they did because mtv used to always give snippets of what's coming up after the commercials and it was dave mustang doing like saying I did lewds, I did heroin, <laughs> I did uppers, I did downers, and then it's someone talking, and he's like, I did acid, I did shrooms, I did cocaine, I did methamphetamine, more people talking, I did weed, I did speed, <laughs> and, then it's like, and then I died. And I remember thinking like, holy shit, that's like the most, ro- I mean, don't do it at home, kids. That's the most rock and roll thing, but I'm gonna tell you the story that happened to me. So the first time I went and saw Megadeth, I was like 21, or, or I had backstage to Megadeth, I was like 20 or 21, and I took ecstasy, like a moron. Really? And I remember going, yeah, I was out of my mind, totally not the right place to take that drug. You shouldn't do it, no one should do that drug. But I was experimenting at that time. I remember going up to Dave Mustaine and saying, hey man, I saw you're behind the music you didn't really leave a whole lot for us other rock bands to do. And he grabs me by my face and looks into my eyes and goes, looks like you're on your way. <laughs> yeah. And Al Petrelli just starts dying laughing behind me. I just hope that this whole, this whole thing will be over and that we can go out and enjoy live music again. Absolutely. I really, yeah. Oh man. I think the drive-in thing is cool. And I think the, online thing is cool and everything but you know a nice venue with a great show it's it's it's, well let me ask you this do you think that this is good though because i feel like music has been so devalued that like you kind of got to take it away from people do you think this is going to make people appreciate what they have because it's like you don't know what you got till it's gone yeah i mean i did i i I haven't thought of it like that i think i think we're so embedded in the struggle right now that, that that perspective hasn't even come out yet think about it you gave i saw that you're giving away tickets to the metallica drive-in but i was saying this the other day it's 120 dollars for a car and that's to me i'm cheap that seems expensive for a pre-recorded show when you go see seven thousand live shows but but there's a demand there's such a demand people want to see it no 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 that's not pre-recorded they're playing live whatever the point is is that it's a movie you're not there 
Well, it's tons, tons of money. Well, you're not there in the flesh. You're you're there virtually. Okay, so I guess it's like an HBO, like Iron Maiden video from the '90s when you paid twenty nine ninety five. Then all your friends could go for twenty nine ninety five to your house. But it's the best we have now. It's, yeah. it, mm-hmm. You know, people are searching. People are, are trying new things. We have to. We have to come up with some sort of model that will get us through this. I'm just glad that people are starting to care about music again. I, I, I got to tell you, I've never had more people. I mean, obviously, everyone got on this train. You know, our friend Johnny A um, does this all the time where he gets online. And he plays for people and he tries to connect. And it's wonderful. Yeah. It's really wonderful. But it's funny because had I six months ago gone online and played piano randomly for people, I'd have one viewer. It'd be my mom. And she'd be like, you're messing up. Whereas when I played piano the first time, people were telling me like, you're saving my life. You're making everything better. One of my friends played us, uh, played me playing piano to an entire Canadian television studio. And it was like, you got, you made our whole day. And I'm like, I really wish I could do this normally. And people would care because usually I show up to a gig and I play my heart out. And then usually the club owner's like, you didn't bring anybody. So no money this week. Right. Yes. It's crazy. But the good thing about those, Johnny A videos. Um, J- Johnny A, for those that don't know, is a great Boston-based guitar player. Travels all over the world. Fantastic, fantastic guitar player. And he was doing 10 o'clock every morning, five days a week. And uh, the co- one of the coolest things is, is that he's keeping his gray hair. <laughs> I like it. I, I like it. He looks distinguished. I love it. It's, it's like a, he's like a statesman. <laughs> I, I, I don't like when the older guy, the older rock guys dye their hair. I'm just going to say it. I just, I just don't like it. I think they look so much cooler. Look at Jimmy Page. He stopped right. dying his hair a long time ago, and he's like the Ben Franklin of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Here's That's the thing great. now, Ernie. You, you probably know this as a single man. Like at one, so years ago it was MILFs. People liked older women. Now younger women. Like men. So if I have a gray hair, it's distinguished. Like I have a ton of gray hairs, but I would never get rid of them. You want to know what my whole head went gray? I, I'm with you because here's the thing. That's the one advantage we have of being mentally inferior, physically inferior. Uh, you know, everything about us sucks compared to a woman, except we age well. Well, some, some say that. Some say that, you know. I per- it's not like there are exceptions to the case, but overall it's easier <laughs> for a man at 60 to make it look like it's working than for women and women who do, I salute you because you want to know what? I appreciate you. I, I agree. I personally, me, I have not had my hair cut in eight months, eight months. I haven't had my hair cut. I mean, I don't know what that means. And I don't plan on, I don't plan on having my hair cut either. I right. think <laughs> I it's love good it. Luck. Why not? It looks great. Yeah, why not? You know what? Here, I want to be in a world where it doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter for you. In fact, I want to talk about another story because I. Here's the thing that's so great about you is that like you just have so many stories. Uh, you'll you'll point to something. So I'm up in your guitar room. I uh, Ernie has this beautiful guitar room because we both share a love for guitars. And I pulled out. I want to say it's an ES three thirty five Gibson. And it had like um, a plaque on the back of it. And Ernie's like, oh, yeah, Aerosmith put that on that. Like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, Joey Kramer stole it and gave it to Joe Perry, and I had to tell him it was mine. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's, that's that, not, am I paraphrasing wrong? Well, let him tell the story. Joey didn't steal anything. Joey, Joey. I lent 
Joey Kramer of Aerosmith, my personal friend. I love the guy. I, I lent him a guitar and I didn't get it back 10 years. <laughs> 10 years later, I got it back. And when I got it back, when I got it back inside the F hole, it, it was stamped with the, the Aerosmith um, number for their, for, for, for their catalog of guitars. Everything they have is, is cataloged wow. so they can keep track of it. And, and somehow, somehow the guitar that I lent Joey Kramer in 10 years when I got it back came out of the Aerosmith inventory. So I, kept, so I kept the little sticker. That is in that is in the F hole of of the three thirty five. I thought it I thought it was it quadrupled the value of it. But here, well, I, I can tell you exactly what happened. Joe Perry came over, saw it leaned against the couch like you lean your guitars against the couch, and says, "This drummer does not deserve a guitar this nice," and took it away from him. <laughs> now I don't know, but it's a uh, yeah. I think I think I think a lot with with guitars is the story, you know, and and what they've been through. You can you can tell that when you pick up an older guitar that's that's been through the circuit. There's a vibe. There's a feel. There's, there's, it's, there's just something about it, you know? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, that's the thing that blows my mind is you have all these relic guitars that cost as much as the vintage guitars. And it's like, why would you pay someone to beat up a guitar when age can just do it and it sounds better and it's way cooler? Yeah, but the, the stuff that I have there, I really like the artist model guitars. Mm -hmm. I really, I really, you know, the... Um, you know, a guy from the police and, and then some Beatles models, you know, they're not the, the, the guitar, but they're, they're modeled right after the, you know, a, a complete copy, like, like Blackie, you know, a Clapton's Blackie. Oh, I know. I've seen your guitars. I got a copy of, uh, it's a copy. It's not. I have a mental inventory of all of them. Right. But it's, but it's cool. I like that. I like the, I like the idea. I like the idea that, that it's, similar to some of my you know my biggest inspiration and some of the people that i think are great musicians i i love i love it plus they look so cool you know it's got the cigarette burnt on the head i mean <laughs> so when hey. you're when you're talking so you, you collect cars and 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 guitars and what's what are you what are you looking for for both of those what what makes Nothing. you say I, is, is is it something that just comes across in front of you and you're like i need that or right, at this point i'm not looking for any more guitars yeah cars at all and and with cars i'm i'm pretty set i'm building the collection i i have it i have it down i have cars being restored all over the world that will eventually get back here and the and the collection will be will be somewhat complete nice that's is wow. the collection ever complete do you think because here's the thing we talk about this a lot on the show ernie there's a very fine line between perfectionism like complete insecurity and total madness. And I feel like I, I joke around with you, but I feel you're, like you're like the, the Remington lady that you're going to keep building. You say your house is going to be done, but it won't be done. You'll eventually say, you know what? There's a space over there. I need to build something else. And you'll have a giant 80 foot marble statue built because I'm convinced you're, you're a perfect amalgamation of the, the, the Remington lady and Khufu who designed the Grand Pyramid. No, they, the, the thing about it in the old saying that, that art is never complete, it's only abandoned, you know? So right. it's like when you, when, you, when you finish a record, you're like, okay, that's good. And then once it's printed and pressed and everything, you listen to it again and you go, oh, shit, I should have, 
You know, yeah. at some point, yep. you have to just let it go. Like the baby bird, you have to push it out of the nest. <laughs> That's very yeah. true. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. That, I, I always thought about that when I was younger, that you, there would be a time when you feel like something has gotten to the level of perfection. It just never is, which is why we're just constantly never. dissatisfied. That's, that's one of the <laughs> most valuable lessons I've learned from the Lost Symphony stuff is like, I the, the the reason I know something's done is because everyone's emailing me going, where the hell is it? We need to get it out tomorrow. Uh, you know? Like, I guess yeah. it's done. Well, here's yeah. the thing. Is that fire underneath your ass? That, that fear? I find myself that fear is the greatest motivator. I'm scared of everything right now. I've been more productive than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm scared to go outside. I'm scared to eat. I'm scared to talk to people. I'm scared to touch things. You Do you know I'm in the best shape of my life? I'm practicing guitar. I'm getting stuff done. Fear is a great motivator. And you want to know what? It makes you better, Corey. I'll tell you from personal experience. That's good. <laughs> uh, Siobhan, how often do you play? Do you play every day? I do. Yeah. I mean, occasionally there's a day that I don't, but I do. I mean, I've got like a warm up regimen that once I get the hardest part is starting. But if I commit to starting every day, I end up going down the rabbit hole. But I do. I mean, I always keep like an, an ongoing list of projects and classes I want to take. I, I'm, a, I'm a learner. I always like to try and add new skills. So I do. I play every day if possible. Yeah, no, that's good. So is the, is the, the warm up regimen. Is it is it the same all the time, or or it's like I'm going to do this scale, but I'm going to do it however I want it, or is it the exact same thing? It changes because I find that if it's the same, I tune out like mentally. I have to keep it like kind of rotating. So I have kind of a like a basket, let's say, of different exercises, and I kind of pick and rotate through them. Um, they're all based on the same things. So you're not and, using your active brain when you're playing. Is it so automatic to you sometimes that you no? Like, it has you're not to be thinking. active because that's the problem. If you go into autopilot, you're not really storing the information. You know, it, there's it's kind of like the difference between when you show up and you play a gig or you're playing through an orchestra piece and you're actually mindfully practicing. That's why you know? Dave Mustaine and 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 James Hetfield are so great because they play these insane rhythm parts while singing. And I always think that that's such yeah. a crazy thing. It blows my mind. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I, I got to say, Siobhan, you are a joy to watch on stage. You, oh, thank you. And it's That's so just, nice. Just the energy. I mean, the whole band is spectacular. You can focus on each individual person and be completely entertained. But, but when we get to you and, you know, and you're wearing the silver, the silver dress and <laughs> the high heels and you play, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's, it's incredible. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I mean, I feel like at this point in my life, every time I get on stage, I just feel like an immense amount of gratitude. And I feel like when you approach the stage with that feeling, it changes the energy that you, you know, project to the audience, you know, so it's, it's like a very intense experience every time I perform because I make it that way. Right. It's now, intentional. Now when you're in the dressing room and you're walking from the dressing room to the stage, is that where it all the culmination of either the butterflies, the nervousness, whatever. And then when you hit the stage, it's over or after the first song, it's over. How, how does it work with you? I think I, I wouldn't say it depends on the situation. I don't necessarily get nervous, but I get excited. And if I'm well prepared, I knew I don't you were going to work. say that you would never be nervous. You're no, such a Jedi. No, it's not true. I think nervousness comes from a lack of preparedness. And a lot of times, yeah. of course, everybody gets, you know, the physical manifestations of nervousness. But if you're secure and you've you've gone through your mindful practice, your body's going to respond, you know. So but, I do get jitters, but it's I, I know in my heart it's excitement. So kind of depends, but usually it kind of lasts through the first half of the song and then I settle because you have to get the, the vibe from the audience. You know, right, you also, yeah. 
your experience of that beginning is is impacted by what you're getting from the crowd. Also. Energy transfers. Yeah. And your crowd, your crowd is, in my opinion, it's it's they're completely devoted to you. Mm-hmm. Again, the word cult comes to mind. They're drinking, yeah. they're drinking <laughs> the grape Kool Aid. They're drinking the grape yeah. Kool Aid yeah. for sure. Kool Aid. Yeah. It's yeah. not. Hey, let's check out this band. No, no, no. <laughs> Everybody's there. But here's the same thing, though. You're the same way because I gotta tell you. You wanna know how I knew that lost if we were onto something was I called up Ernie and I said, "Hey, my friend Siobhan's in town." She's a, a virtuoso violinist. You're like, she is? I'm like, yeah, I'll bring her over if you want. You're like, really? And we, I brought her over. She played it in your kitchen. And listen, you're a man that has a mausoleum. You have a car salon. The look on your face was literally priceless. It you was looked- incredible. I put that up on, it's on my Instagram. If you're, if you're, oh, yeah. Go to Ernie Buck, you're going to scroll down, you're on it. It's, it's <laughs> incredible. Oh, thank you. <laughs> She's so good that Sony keeps thinking that she belongs to them and she, they don't realize that she's just so accurate that she sounds like it's cock Perlman. Oh, no, he's yeah, he's referring to I did like I'm, I'm doing these recordings or like videos and every once in it like actually pretty often it gets muted because they think that it's a commercial recording. <laughs> they like think it's somebody else. Piano, and they said that I stole it. And I said, no, I can send you the original recording. I just made it right here. But <laughs> however they screen it, I don't know. Imagine being so good you have to convince someone you're not Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> no, you're flattering me too much. No, it's all, listen, when you're in my position, you're just always trying to get better. And it's it, when you love it so much, you just there's always something else that can, you can make it more beautiful, more powerful. Like, like you said, it's never done. Every day is just one more step in the right directions. No destination. Yeah, and that's that's bringing us up on the end of our uh, our second hour here. Wow, see, it goes I, by fast, right? <laughs> At so least for Ernie, me. Ernie called me this morning. He was like, "What are we going to talk about?" I'm like, "I don't know," and I still can't tell you what we <laughs> talked about. I have not a clue. Only when Corey edits all the crap out of this will we be able to understand the cohesive idea behind. <laughs> I, I honestly don't even know what I said. You said a lot of words. A lot of them. You know, but, but hey, like Nuno, I get paid by the word. Right. <laughs> Ernie, it's been fascinating. Uh, we definitely appreciate your time. And I think that, that you've had a lot of insight that probably most of our listeners wouldn't have that perspective. So it's, it's super interesting. We appreciate it. Well, thank you. Yeah. And for everyone out there, they should follow you. So maybe tell everyone again for the second episode here where they can find you on, online. or Get me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Ernie Bach Jr. Yep. And go to musicdrivesus.org because you're Brit. I mean, literally, there is nothing more that makes my day than seeing you with a giant <laughs> Santa sack filled with instruments because you do it. I mean, it's literally like Oprah, except with instruments. And it's <laughs> that for me is even cooler than, than, than the stupid stuff she gives out. I, I, this is fantastic. And here's the thing. Kids have a way more malleable mind than we do. We can't learn the recorder. We're stupid. We've, we peaked it 25 years ago. Those <laughs> kids have such a chance. And by not giving them instruments early, we are doing them such a disservice. So what you're doing, it's just, you couldn't be doing better work, at least from our perspective. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. With that said, we got 2020 because we can't even raise enough money for it. But you know what? If you're rich and you have a bunch of money, maybe you should send something to musicdrivesus.org or maybe get Megan up to play another acoustic set for us. All right. But thanks for cool. coming, Ernie. We appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much.
Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! <laughs>